The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. It's a privilege to turn to God's Word together. And this morning we're turning again to Hebrews chapter 11, this this well-known great chapter in God's Word that describes how faith in God and in His promises led His people to obedience throughout the ages. So far, Dr. York and Dr. Light have walked us through Abel, Enoch, and Noah, through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, through Joseph, Moses, and Rahab. And this morning, as we finish chapter 11, we'll look at yet another list of of men and women from Israel's history that demonstrate great faith in God and in His promises. And we'll also see the author's concluding statement and encourage us in our faith. So would you follow with me as we read Hebrews 11, beginning in verse 32 and going to the end of the chapter. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight." Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and in caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us. But apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your word. Your word, which is given to us not only as your word, but also with your spirit. So I pray that you would convict us and encourage us, challenge and lift us up for the glory of your name. We pray this through Christ. Amen. This chapter of Hebrews has often been called the the hall of faith. And it certainly at times feels like we're sort of walking down the hallway, down the rows of of a hall of fame perhaps, remembering the details of each of these great men and women of faith. But as we come to the close of this chapter, I think it's important for us to remember why the author of Hebrews has given us this historical review of faith in action. And maybe it's helpful to compare it to a Hall of Fame. I'm not sure if you've been to Cooperstown, New York, or to Canton, Ohio, or to another Hall of Fame. I'm 
take baseball as an example since that's the sport I know best, but if you've been to the Baseball Hall of Fame, you, you know, you walk down row after row reminiscing about the great stories in baseball's history. And if you're a baseball fan, you're walking past these, these monuments or these, these stands uh, about each player, and you're thinking about these great moments uh, in, their, in their career. And maybe there's the bat or the, the ball that they accomplished something great with. Or, or maybe, maybe you walk down and there's the picture of their induction ceremony into the Hall of Fame. And if you're like me, you think, I used to admire these guys and look up to them and it's just 10 years and now they're balding 60 pounds heavier and I don't think I'd choose them for my softball team. Uh, not, not to mention that they would you know, have some great uh, record in the Baseball Hall of Fame. But what's interesting about a Hall of Fame is that the point of a Hall of Fame is not really just to celebrate or remember great men of the past. In fact, if you go on the the website for the Baseball Hall of Fame, it will tell you, it will say that the goal, the purpose of the Hall of Fame is not just to remember the past, it's actually to preserve the game of baseball by inspiring interest in the game and perpetuating its place in people's minds and hearts in years to come. There's an analogy here, but in an even greater sense, this chapter in Hebrews is not just some who's who in Israelite history. The author's goal is to remind and to encourage and to inspire his readers that in the face of the challenges of their life, faith, faith in God leads to obedience, to perseverance, and to the salvation of their souls. Well, just as a reminder... Right at the end of chapter 10, as we were about ready to start this chapter, the author said this. He said, we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Hebrews chapter 11 has been a long, soul-strengthening description of those who have faith and how faith in God's promises leads us to act and live in a way that preserves our souls for all eternity. And the author's goal this morning is again the same. It's again to strengthen and encourage our faith so that we don't shrink back, but continue to live lives that lead to eternal life, to eternal reward. But this morning's verses, I think, advance the argument of the author in two specific ways. First, these verses demonstrate that faith leads to God's blessing and to eternal reward no matter what our circumstances. And second, these verses declare that today, having seen the death and resurrection of Christ, we have an even greater reason for confident faith than these men and women from Israel's history did. Let's look at each of these reasons. First, faith leads to God's blessing and to eternal reward, no matter what our circumstances in this life. You know, the author of Hebrews so far in chapter 11 has, has walked us steadily through the pages of Genesis, through Exodus, through Joshua. But I imagine him pausing before verse 32 and thinking, I've covered these great men, Noah, Abraham, Moses. I've sufficiently proven my point that faith leads to the saving of one's soul through obedience and perseverance. But I haven't even touched judges and Samuel and kings and the prophets. And I could go on for pages and pages piling up evidence of of how faith leads to God's blessing. And so he decides to to content himself with a list. A list that will remind the readers of all of these stories. 
and will emphasize how many more men and women have preserved their souls through faith in God and his promises. So he says, what more shall I say? For Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David and Samuel and the prophets. And then we get five more verses mentioning various events that, that don't have names attached to them. But I think we can, we can uh, attach some names to these events. Follow, follow with me as we look at verses 33 and following. You, you know what's happening here. Through faith, conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises. Certainly the men that have just been listed here, uh, the, the, the great judges, and, and of course David himself would fit all of these, these descriptions. Stopped the mouths of lions. Daniel in the lion's den certainly comes to mind as the preeminent example of this. Quenched the power of fire. Maybe your mind goes immediately to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, whose faith in God led to their rescue from the fiery furnace. Becoming strong out of weakness, mighty in war, putting foreign armies to flight. Again, could apply to to David or, or to many others. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Maybe you think of uh, the, wo- the woman of Zarephath, whose son was raised to life by Elijah, or the Shunammite woman, whom Elisha raised uh, her son to life. Suffered, suffered mocking, flogging, even chains and imprisonment. Again, there's many we could mention, but maybe your mind goes to Jeremiah, who was insulted and mocked, who was in prison, thrown in the well in the pit for declaring God's word to his people. Maybe, maybe uh, sawn in two gives you a pause and you think, well, I don't remember anywhere in the Old Testament where someone is sawn in two and it's true that we don't have the exact account in the pages of the Old Testament, but the author would have known the stories that his readers would have known and uh, tradition uh, holds that uh, the prophet Isaiah was sawn in two, that the prophet Zechariah was killed with the sword. Uh, so we, we know that there are uh, at least traditionally men who, who suffered these fates. There's plenty of other creative and cruel methods of torture mentioned in these verses, most of whom seem to match stories of, of Jewish people in the 400 years between the Old Testament and the New Testament, particularly in the time around Judas Maccabus and the time when the Seleucid Empire was trying to force all of its people to have the same laws and the same customs in order to unite their empire. They came up with numerous cruel, torturous punishments for Jewish people who refused to adopt a Greek way of life but continued to obey God's laws. I think of the testimony of one mother whose seven sons were brutally tortured and killed in front of her. And as, as this happened, the mother did not weep for her sons but encouraged them not to give in and to go to their death. And then she turned to the king after all seven had been killed and said, Yes, my sons may be dead, but they now drink ever-flowing life by virtue of God's covenant. These are the examples of faith in God. Only faith in God who exists and who rewards those who seek him can respond in such a way to pain and persecution. These are the stories that the author of Hebrews has in mind here at the end of chapter 11. But what I particularly want us to notice about this this long list of faithful men and women is how faith shaped their response in many different situations. Some of these men were called to accomplish great things in the history of God's people, things that no one would expect them 
to accomplish. And they accomplished them through faith in God and in his promises. Maybe you think of, of Gideon. Gideon was called to defeat the Midianites. And if you remember in Judges, the Midianite army is gathered in a valley. And, and scripture describes this army as like locusts beyond number and like the sands on the seashore. And Gideon is called to defeat that army with 300 men. Remember how he starts with 32,000 and God whittles it to 10,000 and then down to 300. Who could expect Gideon to defeat this Midianite army with 300 men? Well, no one could expect him to do that. It seems impossible. And yet he did. By faith in God's power and God's promises. No one would expect a shepherd boy, the runt of his family, to become the greatest king in Israel's history. Remember David when Samuel comes to anoint uh, one of uh, the sons of, of the family David's father doesn't even think to call him. He's just the runt out in the field. He couldn't be the one who would be here to save God's people. And yet he was. He was the one who would save Israel from Goliath, this shepherd boy. How does he do it? Not in his own strength, but by faith in God and in his promises. There are others in this list who didn't accomplish anything at all themselves, though. So some accomplished great things in the history of God's people. Some didn't do anything, but received miraculous salvation. Think of maybe Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or Daniel. There was nothing spectacular that they did. They didn't accomplish anything, and yet God saved them by his power because of their faith. I think of the faith of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You remember what they said to King Nebuchadnezzar when when Nebuchadnezzar brings them before him and says, Who do you think can save me from or save you from my hand? And they say, Our God, our God whom we serve is able to save us from your hand, O king. And even if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods. This faith, this perhaps unexpected to some, faith in God and his promises leads them to an incredible salvation. But notice in these verses, and this is important, that faith in God and his promises doesn't always lead to positive outcomes in this life. Because it's the same faith of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the same faith of Gideon and David that leads Jeremiah to endure imprisonment flogging, mockery. It's the same faith that leads others to pain, suffering, persecution, and death. No one could expect a person to endure such great suffering and still hold fast to God, but they did because of faith. They did it by faith, believing that God exists and rewards those who seek him with an assurance for things hoped for, though not yet seen. Now, if you and I are standing here today, we think, okay, so faith can lead to a couple options. Faith might lead me to be saved miraculously from a fiery furnace. Or faith might lead me to endure persecution to the point of death. And we say, I think I would like option A. God, if faith can lead in either direction, I'll take the first. I'd like to be miraculously saved. But do you see the point of these verses is that you and I don't choose which circumstances we're called to go through. You and I don't choose what the result of our faith will be. But in both cases, in both cases, God's blessings are poured out on those who acted by faith. It's God's blessings that strengthen those who go through torture and persecution 
that strengthen them to persevere in faith even to the point of death. We can't do that in our own strength. It is God's strength that blesses those with that faith, that blesses that faith to the point of eternal reward. See, the important part for you and I is not which earthly circumstances will we go through. Will we go through the one that leads to miraculous salvation or the one that leads to death? The important point is whether we will persevere in faith, maybe in a way that no one would expect in their own strength, so that our souls achieve eternal reward. I love the way verse 38 highlights uh, this, this unexpected faith going through persecution. That little phrase at the beginning of verse 38, you see it there as it describes those who went to the point of their death, saying that these were those of whom the world was not worthy. What a wonderful phrase, because undoubtedly those who were persecuting God's people thought that the that the people being persecuted were not worthy of the great aims that they were headed for. What is this Jewish person compared to the kingdom of Babylon? What is this prophet of God and what he is saying compared to the importance of what we're doing as the powerful of this nation? And yet scripture points out this great reversal. It is exactly the opposite because time always proves the emptiness of of those who strive for the things of this world. And it turns out that those who are striving for popularity and success and power in this world are actually not worthy of those who by faith in God and his promises preserve their souls to the glory of eternal reward. Perhaps we could summarize this long list of names and stories this way. In many different circumstances and situations, all of these men and women acted by faith believing that the reward for obedience would be better than anything offered in this life so that it would be worth obeying God even when they didn't see how God's promises might be fulfilled. Now as we think about these men and women in faith in these different circumstances, I think these verses encourage us in a few directions. And I want us to look together at how these verses encourage us in our lives. On the one hand, these verses encourage us to act in faith and obedience, even when we don't think we're capable of it. According to Hebrews chapter 11, faith led some of these men to conquer kingdoms, enforce justice, obtain promises, put foreign armies to fight, even against overwhelming odds. But when God calls us to do something for him and his people, faith responds with obedience, even when we feel overwhelmed. Now, it's probably unlikely that you or I are going to be called to put an army as great as the sand on the seashore to flight with 300 men. Probably not the way that we're going to be called to act in faith. But what might God call us to do through faith in him? Dear friends of ours who are members at Calvary Church around the corner, This past month, packed up their homes, sold all that they had, left their family, and went to a Middle Eastern country to be missionaries. Their goal, along with their three kids under 10, is to start a business, to live there, learn Arabic, and to share the news of Jesus with anyone whom they can. And I'm sure rational people around them, and those of us who were dear friends who longed to have them with us, said, surely this is more than 
you would be expected to do. A young family like yours, this is too drastic, too big of a step. Surely this is too dangerous a calling in your stage of life. And yet over the course of four or five years, it became absolutely clear that this is what God was calling them to do. And so faith and God followed where he was calling. There are others, there are many of you in our own congregation who have taken great steps that seem maybe too big for you to care for those around you. Maybe you have brought extra people into your home. You have entered the life of suffering, someone suffering deeply and sought to share their burdens. And at times it seems too much for us. We think, how can we add this to our life? We, we think, I don't even know what to say. How can I help them through this intense suffering? And yet when God calls, faith responds and enters life looking for what God has called us to do. And so brothers and sisters, I'd ask, are we praying daily? to know what God would call us to do by faith in him, even if it seems too big for someone like me. And here's the point. Faith is not a reckless decision to accomplish something great for God because surely we should accomplish something great for God. That's not the point. The point is rather that faith is willing to tackle something when it becomes clear God is calling us to do it, even if we don't know how we will be able to accomplish it and don't know that we could and our strength. Because faith has its confidence in God who rewards those who seek him and obey him. That's one direction these verses encourage us. On the other hand, these verses also encourage us in the face of suffering. See, these verses certainly contradict the idea that if we just respond in faith, God will certainly bless us in this life. You know, many of you, the sort of health and wealth gospel that says, look, if we have strong enough faith in God, he will heal your diseases. He will prosper you in this life. And these these verses undermine that very clearly. But even if we don't have a theology that is flawed, thinking that strong enough faith leads to success, you and I can still find ourselves wondering what's wrong with us when our circumstances don't turn around. We think, well, sure, God might test one of his people, but if I respond in faith and pass the test, he'll take this suffering away. I've passed the test. We think, yes, I know that suffering enters our lives, but I'm trying to respond in faith and things aren't getting better. What am I doing wrong? These are the the, the thoughts that enter our minds. And these verses give us such encouragement to say, no, Our goal is not to look for suffering to stop and things to get better if only we respond in faith. Rather, these verses encourage us, brother and sister who are suffering, these verses encourage you that God's blessings come not necessarily in the end of our pain and suffering in this life, but in the strength to endure with faith to the end, in the confidence of God's blessing, knowing that God rewards those who seek him, which will be poured out for all eternity. So these verses encourage us in the face of suffering. But I think there's a third direction, another direction. I think these verses also encourage our faith in the face of our own weaknesses and failures. I want you to read over this list of names in verse 32 again. Look over those verses, those, those names there. Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, and Samuel. If you let your mind turn back to the Old Testament and the stories of these men, you should be surprised perhaps, at some of the appearance of these names in the great chapter on faith. Sure, Abraham, Moses, Rahab, we expect to see them listed with the great men of faith, but 
But Gideon? Gideon, who doubted God and doubted God and doubted God until he got a wet fleece and then a dry fleece and then finally agreed to go and do what God called him to do? Or Barak, who actually refused to obey God unless the prophetess Deborah went with him? Samson is certainly more famous for his illicit love of women than he is for his obedience to God. Jephthah, the main thing Jephthah is known for is sacrificing his daughter after a foolish vow. And David, okay, yes, a a man of great faith, but also a murderer and an adulterer. How do we account for, how do we think through the inclusion of these men in this chapter on faith? I think our inner assumption that godly men don't sin, at least in the big ways, gets blown to pieces by the inclusion of these names in this chapter on faith. I think this chapter reminds us that God is concerned that we persevere in faith, not that we be perfect in faith. When it comes down to it, it's easy to read this chapter and assume, well, these are the great men and women of faith, but certainly I don't have that kind of faith. I'm not that strong in my faith. But quite to the contrary, this chapter invites us to live by faith in God in the face of our own weaknesses. Can you feel your faith falter? This chapter isn't a call to superhuman Hall of Fame faith. This chapter is a call to keep trusting the superhuman, glorious God who is always faithful to his promises. As one commentator put it, the author here doesn't ask the readers to look to themselves and summon up all their energy to have great faith to the end. Rather, what it means to endure is to keep trusting God until the end. Do you know how sinful your heart is? Do you wonder if God can use someone like you with your history and your sins to serve him? Listen to John Calvin. John Calvin's conclusion as he commented on this passage was this. There was none of these men and women whose faith did not falter. In every saint, there was always to be found something reprehensible. Nevertheless, although faith may be imperfect and incomplete, it does not cease to be approved by God. There is no reason, therefore, while the fault from which we labor should break us or discourage us, provided we go on by faith in the race of our calling. Yes, this passage is no casual approach to sin. That is not the point at all. But rather, brothers and sisters, let us go on in faith, persevering with confidence in him who we trust, despite our past weaknesses and failings. Well, there's so much more we could say, but I think we have sufficiently seen that whatever our circumstances, the confidence that God exists and rewards those who seek him, the assurance of things hoped for, even while not seen, faith keeps our souls from shrinking back and so preserves them to the blessings of all eternity. Well, in our remaining time, I want to look at the last two verses for our second point. Our second point, that we who have seen the testimony of Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended, have an even greater reason for confident faith than these men and women from Israel's history. Remember that the author here, the author of Hebrews 11, is not here just to exalt the men of the past. He's here to encourage his readers towards faith, and he reminds them what a great reason they have for confident faith in God. You see what verse 39 says. It says, all these men and women that we've discussed in this chapter, all these, though commended through faith, 
did not receive what is promised. Maybe that verse gives us pause, but this verse isn't saying that God promised something and then didn't deliver. It's not saying that these men uh, thought they were going to get something and it didn't end up working out. No, what this verse is reminding us of is that the men and women of the Old Testament had faith in a promise that was fulfilled after their lifetime. Abraham received a promise and he responded in faith, even though the fulfillment of that promise didn't come until years after he died. Moses responded in faith in God's promises, even though those promises weren't fully and finally fulfilled until years after his lifetime. All the men and women listed in this chapter died waiting, waiting for the promise to be fully fulfilled. Their confidence was that God would fulfill his promises even though it was after their lifetime. But, says verse 40, God, in his graciousness, has provided something even better for us. Why? Because after Christ, since Christ, we have seen the fulfillment of God's promises. We've seen it. It's happened. And how much more can we have an assurance of the things hoped for since we have seen the fulfillment of God's promises and the death and resurrection and ascension of Christ. I think we can understand the author's point maybe with a a simple analogy. Maybe you can imagine a parent talking to their daughter. We'll call her Susie. Susie's never met her grandparents who live far away. And the parents say to her, Susie, you have grandparents and they love you. And they're going to come and see you. And when they come, they're going to spoil you. They're going to let you have dessert two times in a day. They'll let you order soda at a restaurant. This grandparent is coming. And the child, even though she's never met her grandparents, can trust what her parent says because her parent is trustworthy. But then the grandparents show up. They come. And they love Susie. And they take her on outings. They spoil her. They do, in fact, let her have two desserts in one day and order soda at restaurants. And they leave Susie with a note telling her how much they love her and that they will be back again next year. Now, both before the visit and after the visit, Susie had reason to believe her parents' word about her grandparents. But how much greater will her confidence in who her grandparents are be after they've come, when they've seen them come and do exactly what her parents told her that they would do? Well, Hebrews is giving us something so much greater because Christ is is no mere grandparent showing up to spoil us. Christ is the holy God showing up in the fullness of time as the climactic moment in all of history, the savior of our souls, the source of divine blessing, who showers on us all things needed for life and godliness, and he has come. The promises of God through all ages have arrived in Christ. We've seen it. It's not just a future promise anymore. It has been fulfilled, offered to us in Jesus Christ. Kent Hughes pastor and teacher at Westminster Seminary puts it this way. He says, the message of these verses to the embattled little church and the message to us is this, how great our advantage 
right here now while we walk the earth, we have the perfection of Christ. We have a high priest who has offered a perfect sacrifice for sins once for all. We have a high priest who sits at the right hand of the Father and who prays for us. We have all that now fulfilled in Christ. And so God, who has provided for us, who has given us the work of Christ, For those of us now who have been born since the time of Christ, we have something better than those who merely look look forward to this promise. We have a rock-solid reason for faith. Christ has come. He has fulfilled God's promises. And this great fulfillment guarantees that he will fulfill his last promise and come again to take us to be with him forever. What a glorious note and encouragement to our faith and God and his promises. I want to make one more note about the end of verse 40, because there's one more anticipation, one more glorious note that the author adds to us for us at the end of verse 40. He says, God has provided something better for us, that apart from us, they, that is these great men and women of the faith, apart from us, they should not be made perfect. What does that mean? It it certainly does not mean that there's anything we do as believers in Christ to make them perfect. We don't make them perfect. But rather, what the author is reminding us is that there's not a distinction between those from Israel and the past and those who are God's people now when it comes from where they will be and, and the end to which they're looking. The church will be joined by the, or they will join the patriarchs of Israel of old. All together we will stand before the throne of Christ. In other words, these men and women in Hebrews chapter 11, they're not a class of hall of famers we can only look up to and say, well, they received one thing, now we're receiving another. No, all together we will be gathered before the throne of Christ. We all receive our perfection together from Christ. And so in God's providence, those of old will be joined together with us or we will be joined together with them so that all together we will be made perfect before the throne of God in Christ. Another glorious note of eternal joy that awaits us. And so the question for us is, do you know Christ? Have you put your faith in Christ the fulfillment of God's promises and the Savior of all mankind? Have you lifted your eyes above the things seen to the things that are unseen? Do you believe that God exists and rewards those who seek Him through His Son, Jesus Christ? And do you believe that those rewards are eternal life with Him forever? If not, would you come to Him? Would you come to Him and be part of this great company of heirs of glory that will be gathered from all ages before the throne of God? Would you come? And if so, if you have put your faith in Christ, Hebrews 11 is a strong encouragement to your souls. It's a strong encouragement to hold fast to Jesus in faith. For the things promised and hoped for will come to pass. The things unseen will one day not only be seen, but they will be the true reality for all eternity. And God will reward those who seek him and persevere in faith no matter what circumstances he calls us to go through. What a blessing and a promise. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. God, we thank you for these words that you have given us. We thank you for the example of the men and women in ages past and of their faith in you. 
We thank you for the fulfillment of your promises that these men and women put their faith in. We thank you for Christ. What a solid reason you've given us for faith in you, the trustworthy God who has fulfilled his promises in Christ. And so I pray, Father, I pray that you would give us the faith to do what you have called us to do, even if it seems too great for us in our strength. I pray that you would give us the strength and the faith to endure, even in the face of suffering and difficulty. I pray that you would give us the faith to follow you and persevere in faith to the end, despite our weakness and our failure. And I pray that all of this would be to the glory of God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.